First, let me just say that I mean this in the best possible way. This is the gayest movie we have ever had on this podcast, and that's saying a lot because the last episode featured fisting. Plot-wise, it didn't make a lick of sense, but I, I, I had fun, so let's go pick these berries. Join us on a journey as we frolic through fields of filmmaking follies. Join us on this week's episode of Raspberry Fields Forever. You suck! What's up, everyone? Welcome to the season finale of Raspberry Fields Forever. My name is Jesse Rodden. I am your host, as always. And with me, as always, is the Matt Damon to my Ben Affleck, Mr. Kieran Gibbs. Kieran, how you doing today, bud? Uh, I'm 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 sad that it's over, but I'm glad that it happened. Um, <laughs> I feel I feel joyous because we didn't end on a complete bummer, but we're gonna get to that. Um, how are you today, sir? Doing pretty good, man. You know, I uh, just kind of trying to get through this film because it was it was honestly it was an easier one to get through just because it was entertaining and it was you know exciting and joyful throughout uh but you're right it did not make a whole look of sense but we'll get into that further once we start getting into the meat and potatoes of this whole thing uh, but first let's kind of introduce people to some of the characters and situation stuff so we're going to be talking about Can't Stop the Music today, which if you don't know what this movie is, it actually won the first ever Razzie Awards. It was the winner of the 1980 Razzies. It is called Can't Stop the Music. It is the Village People movie. Uh, if you don't know who the Village People are, they have come up with such hits as YMCA, In the Navy, and Macho Man. I think those are probably the only three songs that I remember by the Village People. Those are definitely the big three, um, if you want to go by basketball standards. But yes, this is the Village People movie. It was made in 1980. And this is, I think it's the only film that we're reviewing that was directed by a woman. Her name was Nancy Walker. And it stars the Village People. Formerly, when they shot this, Bruce Jenner, but now known as Caitlyn Jenner, we're going to call her Caitlyn Jenner just to avoid any confusion. And of course, the Goot, Steve Gutenberg. Oh, Steve Gutenberg, known mainly from the Police Academy movies and Three Men and a Baby. Uh, you know, whenever you've got a, whenever you've got a, a script that needs some work and you need an actor who's going to be like your good centerpiece, you call in the Goot. All right, you call in Mr. Gutenberg because. Man, I'm telling you, he it's so funny that he is kind of the central focus of this entire film. And yet he's like he's like the I guess maybe the seventh, eighth person listed on the actual like credits of this film, uh, mainly because they have to get through every single person of the village people. But hell, some of the village people didn't even come in until halfway through the movie. Oh, well over halfway through the movie, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's outline the picture and then we can get to the next segment. Uh, Jesse, do we have any pre-context that we need to go over before we go into the meat and potatoes of this picture? Well, uh, I think the only pre-context that we need to kind of put out there is the fact that this was the film that inspired the creation of the Golden Raspberry Awards. What we hang this entire podcast on was inspired by just how terrible this movie was. And I know we have our sour scale at the end and we're going to be given our opinions and stuff like that. But for the time being, let's just say that if it wasn't for this film, we would not have this podcast. And so 
I got to show my appreciation for the film before I start ragging on it really heavily, because if it wasn't for this, we would not have this podcast. <laughs> no, we would not. So without further ado, Jesse, uh, if it's cool with you, do you think we can go on to our next segment or rather our first segment? God save the screen. God save the screen. Ow. Right, so this film starts out like two other films have started out or not started out, but they follow the certain archetype. And it's the proverbial talented um, prick who is surrounded by talented, nice people. In this case, the talented prick is Jack, portrayed by Steve Gutenberg. And Jack, much like every other music protagonist in this particular um, round of films, be it the jazz singer or Xanadu, was written by somebody who's never had a real job because he starts out the movie selling records, I think. And he's like, like a record salesman. Is it, That's what I'm led to believe, even though, you know, there's not like really record salespeople. You can't really make a commission off of a vinyl. Right. Yeah. He ends up working at this um, um, record store. And I mean, they are super slammed at this record store. Like it must be the hottest place to go to because like, I mean, he can't even get through the crowd to talk to his boss. And his boss is one of these real prick bosses, you know, one of these ones that he's like, hey, I really need this day off. Uh, I've got this big opportunity and I, I need to see. And his boss is just like, no, if you're not here, then you don't get a You don't have a job anymore. And, and I need you here for inventory that's what it was he needed him for inventory and yeah so he ends up having to quit his job right off the bat and you know he's kind of doing this i'm gonna go and be an artist and i don't care that i'm losing my job and you know and then we have to have that kind of with in the same vein as xanadu you know we got to have that moment of he's got to express himself by like dancing in the streets and going for a skate well, and it's not even, I, I don't even want to compare it to Xanadu because Xanadu is just kind of, it's a bit of a minuscule moment. This goes on, I timed it for six whole friggin' minutes. And <laughs> it's just Steve Gutenberg. Often the shots are just repeated and layered beside each other. Just like you said, frolicking through the streets of New York. And the song is, if I'm not mistaken, it's about New York. And there's, he passes a group of people and they're singing about New York and the T-shirts on the three people that he passes. And it's a very prominent moment in the intro, say San Francisco. <laughs> so I, I, I think that that's a pretty, um, call me stupid. I think that's a bit of a, a conflicting message to send when you're singing about New York City. But hey, look at these people with San Francisco written across their tits. Um, but anywho, old Goots is having a good old trance about New York City when the song ends and he goes home and he meets his roommate, Samantha, who, funny enough, you had told me before this was supposed to be played by Olivia Newton-John, but Olivia Newton-John could not fulfill this particular role because she was filming Xanadu, a little full circle moment for Raspberry Fields Forever, who says we're not a clever podcast. <laughs> and she was replaced by Valerie uh, Perrine, I believe is how you pronounce her last name. Please forgive me if I am butchering that in any way, shape, or form. Um, she has been featured in quite a few things. I mean, she was in Superman 1, 2, and 3, uh, the Richard Donner Supermans. Um, she's been in, oh gosh, uh, Family Law, Just Shoot Me. 
picture this, my girlfriend's boyfriend. She's been in uh, quite a few film and TV shows. Um, she's had quite an illustrious career, but we got to see her tits in this one. You're, you're a very nuanced and deep man, Jesse Rodden. I want you to know that. <laughs> well, I'm just saying it did not. I did not expect to see her tits and I did not expect to see a bunch of bunch of um, uh, young men. There's no need to feel down, Jesse, young man. Pick yourself up the ground, Jesse. I said, young man, something, something around, Jesse. I, I had the lyrics in my head, but they're gone. But yeah, yeah. there's um, this was in the heyday of cinema where you could get away. They treated nudity like we treat the F word now. Um, you can get away with like one per every couple of hours and still avoid the R rating. And it's and not even avoid the R rating. This movie is rated PG. Okay. Well, I don't believe that PG-13 was invented because PG-13 was invented for one of the Indiana Jones movies, if I'm not mistaken. Ah, well, it, it it's this film and then also The Nude Bomb, which was also rated PG. Now, that one, um, it did show some tits in that one, but it kind of held back a little bit more. At least it was under a shirt um, in some way. This, this movie just not only gives you female nudity but i mean it has a lot of men tussling with each other in the showers and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of swinging dongs in this film which i mean don't get me wrong to each their own on that one but for a pg movie it threw me way off <laughs> listen to me my friend ain't nothing wrong with a swinging dong my friend all right <laughs> like that's that's what makes the world spin that's the backbone of this nation well, if there is a um, film that encapsulate, encapsulates that the most, it's this film, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And something to point out, um, Steve Gutenberg's character in this film, our protagonist, his name is Jack Morell, which is a not-so-subtle reference to the creator of The Village People, Jacques Morali, which I I can't stand when people make like autobiographical works of themselves without like a sense of understanding or a sense of humor about it or a sense of self-awareness. And it's purely to like kind of suck your own balls. That's kind of my issue with the Fablemans versus like Bardo, because like, yes, I appreciate like your experience, but like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. I mean, I love the Fablemans. I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a great film, but I can understand where you're coming from with that as well, because, yeah, this is supposed to or this is actually listed as a pseudo autobiographical film of the village people. And um, let's be honest. I mean, if this was how they got together in any way, shape or form, this is the most happenstance BS that uh could ever exist because it's literally that's all it is is them going from scene to scene and being like well we need this or oh we need new band members or we need this and then all of a sudden one a new village people just randomly shows up out of the blue <laughs> the way i like to describe it is um it's the disco avengers a little bit yeah a little bit that and it's so funny to me because um you know, they are introducing them one at a time, but then once they start singing, they, it seems like all of them kick in, even though they're not there. This is what it sounds like to me. Oh, don't, don't even get me started on the uh, concept of live singing within this movie and what they try to portray as live singing. We'll get into that, mister. Let's get back to the plot. We're getting sidetracked here. You can't, you can't stop me, Jesse. 
I'm going to get through this plot. It freaking kills me. While there's not much of like a gripping plot, there is a bunch of exposition. There's a lot of things that happen in this two hour film, Jesse. It's just bam, 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 thing, the thing, the thing, the thing. So the first <laughs> thing to thing is Jack going home to his roommate, Samantha, who is portrayed by Valerie Perrine. Jack goes home and he is just ecstatic because he's quit his job and he's got an opportunity to DJ in front of some guy named Benny, who's just a creep that we never hear from again. But he basically bullies her into going to this um, concert, even though she tells him like, no, quite a few times that she doesn't want to go. And that is a common theme in this movie is that Jack is a very talented composer from what we have heard of his music, but he surrounds himself with even more talented people like Sam is a very talented model and she knows a bunch of people and he's surrounded himself with the village people who are the musicians of the uh, whole plot. But he just kind of yells at everybody to do stuff for him. And that is this what he does the entire movie. Like, I want to be famous, but hey, Sam, go make some connections or come to my show or hey, you come sing for me. And he just screams at everybody. And he I wrote that I wrote in my notes here that Jack is God's most insufferable idiot. <laughs> well everything just kind of happens to him and there's no like there's nothing that he really does to drive the story along he's just like oh i came across this problem and then sam has to go and fix it yeah it, 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 and that's and it's very very similar to neil diamond's kind of character arc in the jazz singer and also uh tommy warriors in xanadu whose name i cannot remember off the top of my head after Jack bullies Sam into coming to the event that he's going to DJ, that's also where we meet the first village person, Philippe, who is described in the cast list as the Indian. Um, I'm just going to kind of call it that because it's how they call him in the uh, script. Whereas, you know, he's a native person or an indigenous person, but he calls himself and that's called throughout the rest of the picture of, oh, it's the Indian over there. So that's the first village person we meet. Mm -hmm. which i love how their first village person that they meet they say that he is a neighbor of sam and jack and he's just over there chilling in their apartment and he's got a full headdress on and like this like just a loincloth on and their reasoning behind anybody's like weird clothing choices or anything like that is that's the village well have you been to the neighborhood lately <laughs> it's been a while I mean, it's not it's not too terribly far off. Expression is expression. So I I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I do see where you're coming from. This is just kind of a because most of this movie is just kind of hackneyed reasoning, just like, oh, my gig fell through. Well, here's another one right here on a platter. That's essentially this entire script. But whenever they're in their apartment, isn't that whenever we get our first sighting of Caitlin? Because at the apartment is when he's he's delivering that package to her from her old boss. First time I remember seeing Caitlin in the story because Caitlin plays Ron and Ron is just kind of this businessman sort of accountant type. And the first time I remember seeing um, the character Ron him, he was delivering a box. He was delivering a cake and this old lady just robs him like runs a hustle on him with this tiny little pistol, robs him of his dollars, lets him keep the cake though, and just drives away on a moped. I wanted to be in that movie. <laughs> right? Yeah. That that scene to me was probably the best scene in this just because it was just so random and unexpected and it, they just kept going with it. Like 
you know, they they had the whole thing drawn out where he like pulled out his wallet and she got on the back of the moped and she's just like pointing his gun at him like, now don't follow us now. I'll keep this pointed at you until we're around the corner. That's it. Again, I want to watch that movie because I would watch an old lady rob a bunch of people on a moped because I can just picture the final act in my head. It's in like Las Vegas or like the Dominican Republic or something. And she's driving her scooter and she's covered in blood and cocaine and just dollar bills are falling out of her back pockets. <laughs> and there's just an army of cop cars rolling behind her. And she just screams while she's driving this moped off the cliff. Smoke meth and handle Satan, you rim suckers. <laughs> I would watch that movie. Right. Right. Just Thelma and Louise off the Grand Canyon on that moped. Exactly. <laughs> but anywho, we, we go to um Jack's concert or like disco. I the 80s, as far as like music production went, it confuses the hell out of me because regular music production confuses the hell out of me, and I'm in a band. Um but we go to this gig and Jack is DJing and he finishes DJing and he impresses this really like he looks like if Margaritaville made people. And that was the big kind of crux of this event is that this fellow named Benny was going to be there. He impresses Benny. Benny's a little bit of a creep to Sam. And then that's just kind of the end of Benny's involvement in the story. But on the plus side, Sam got to uh, dance with a bunch of blonde dudes. So that was that was fun for her. Right. And I love how they they never come out, come out and say anything about homosexuality or gay people or that anybody's gay in this film, but they express it so obviously. And and it's just so funny because Sam is out there dancing with all these guys and stuff like that. And she ain't got a care in the world because she's in a gay bar and we all know that she's in a gay bar, but there nobody is saying it. <laughs> well, because, you know. But you got to sell. It's a musical. It's PG, and you can't you can't say the the quiet part loud. You know what I mean? It's still right. repre- even after the Hollywood's nervous breakdown and like new sort of expression in the seventies. We're still, as far as that sort of representation goes, we're still living in a very repressed era in the um, late seventies, early eighties when this was produced. Oh, for sure. But, you know, it's one of those they usually try to hide it and make it a little bit more subtle. And at the beginning of this movie, you can tell they were trying to just give you those subtle hints of it and stuff. But then by the once we get to the YMCA scene, they just throw it all out the window and they're like, oh, no, this this is a gay anthem, which I'm all here for. That's the reason why, like, I I mean, there's parts of this movie that I'm just kind of like, you know, I like it because it's showing it's showing gay perspective in a positive light. It's not like, oh, you know, we have this murderer and one of them's gay and we have to go under, or, uh, you know, uh, the psycho killer queer scenario or anything like that. No, it ended up becoming like a celebration of gay culture by the end of it. And that's the reason why, like, I do hold this movie above some others for sure. Oh, absolutely. I, I concur with that immensely to um, put a little SAT word in there for you. Um, but anywho, after the gig goes so well, Jack and Sam or Sam decides to lead Jack into a positive manner because that's her kind of job throughout the whole freaking movie. Which something I do appreciate, though, is that Sam and Jack's relationship is purely platonic and they make that pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Um, like that is a bit refreshing that the main guy and the main girl don't have to bang each other. Of course, of course, Sam has to bang somebody, but it's not the main guy protagonist. So, you know, baby steps. 
but he decides to record a demo but have a party at the same time and i said earlier i don't know all that much about music production but i do know this recording like an album at a party and recording an album at a party outside is ass for acoustics and it's ass for production and i don't buy that shit for a second <laughs> and at this party it's kind of just happenstance that he's running into these people because sam and jack are just like trying to find anybody they can to sing these songs that jack has come up with so they're just you know they're like on the streets and he's like ah oh, you know we really need to find somebody and then they find like the construction worker from the village people and he's i don't okay this didn't make any sense to me because they portrayed him as a like an electrician or um or um a handyman worker you know that type of thing but then it looked like he was also at a photo shoot i'm gonna take a guess and say that like they, they were actually doing some artistic stuff that was independent of this movie and they were like fuck it keep it in they just randomly run into felipe on the streets and he's like hey felipe have you uh, ever sung before and you know he just kind of belts out something and this is the indian guy with the headdress and he's just walking down the streets in his headdress and loincloth but he's like yeah you know i can sing a little bit cool be at my place later today and he's just walking down the street again boop a doop a doop and then he runs into a cowboy <laughs> and he's just like hey do you sing and he's like yeah sure and he just starts like doing a little ditty real quick he's like yeah be at my place later today you know and and just walking down the street again and it's the silliest thing and we and it's all culminating to this like party that he's having where he's recording his demo and stuff that sam can send off to her record label friend they get there and i think this is when we're introduced are we introduced to the cop village person we are introduced. Yes, it. We at this point we have met of the Disco Avengers. We have met one the Indian to the uh, as you had mentioned the cowboy, and we had met a construction worker who had his own little number. So that's three of them. And then when they start this recording party, the cop shows up because the cop is a friend of a friend of Sam's. And again, everybody just kind of kind of happens to meet each other by happenstance. And that is the fourth of the fifth village person we have yet to meet. Six. Six village people. Six village people. You are correct. Who am I missing? Mm -hmm. uh, the the sergeant. The military guy. The military guy. He does. He has not showed up yet, so we have two more. Correct. Thank you for the correction. But my initial thought when they're, they get together and they start, they look over their parts for like a second, and then they just start belting out this musical number that sounds great, which would not sound great if you record it outside because there's such thing as outside noise. But anyway. I initially had a problem with it because I'm like, man, people couldn't like look at that for a second and then be that tight. And I'm like, wait a minute. I know some musicians who have just straight up walked into a studio, looked at a thing for like 10 minutes and then played it right as rain. So that's not necessarily out of the realm of possibility, but the way it sounded certainly was because that mixing would not be there. I think this is our first time that we get to introduce to um, Sam's friend, Sydney. And you talk about somebody who is just thirsty and i mean she is trying to get it from anybody who's willing to give it and she ends up like taking jack off to the side too because she knows that jack smokes or does drugs and which you are well I, I hate to interrupt you jesse but you're getting some names mixed up my friend am i because the person you are referencing is lulu lulu uh knows sam because sam as mentioned before was a model 
And Lulu is an old co-worker of hers, but Lulu is a secretary of her old boss, and her old boss is Sydney. Sydney is a more older, distinguished blonde lady, whereas Lulu, like you said, is looking to plug a hole. Yes. Okay. And, and But Lulu is also chaotic and so much fun because <laughs> she's just there and she's the life of the party the second she gets there. And like you said, she gets Jack to go smoke a joint afterward. And when they come back and he's too high to operate, he go, she goes... Well, uh, let me know next time you're in town, Daddy. I'll give you some magic mushrooms. Like, shit, Lulu, thanks for bringing the party. <laughs> right? She was the most interesting character of this. Like, she was one of those ones that I'm like, I want more of her. You know, I want I want them to bring her around more. And I want I just want the story to be about this and her just thirst around all these gay men in the village, you know? Oh, well, dude, she's... Let, this movie is filled to the brim with pretty interesting concept of characters, but we are burdened with Jack as our protagonist. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and that's the weird thing is that Jack's the one person that I'm just kind of like, he he doesn't have any active motivation. It's all passive motivation and it's all things happening to him. He doesn't actively go out and really do anything, you know? No, because Sam puts everything together for him and like she's hosting this recording party for him where we have four of the six village people. And the reason Lulu is there um, is because Sydney, her uh, Sam's ex-boss and her current boss is trying to promote something, a campaign for milk, which is actually pretty ironic or pretty funny, rather, because that's a thing that happened in real life in the early 2000s, you know, the Got Milk campaign. Mm -hmm. so it was kind of crazy to see that so lulu's there trying to talk sam into coming back to modeling for the milk campaign which will come into the fold later but sydney ends up also coming to the party and something i want to point out is we we see sydney go to a phone booth and she starts to call an operator but her finger gets stuck in the machine and i'm <laughs> terribly sorry jesse but we've seen um windows we've seen tables We've even seen washing machines, but a phone booth was not something that I thought I could stick in like the stuck under category in that particular website that I shall not name. <laughs> okay. That's what fair. are you doing, step village person? <laughs> That's not well, my best work. Don't laugh at that. Well, uh, and then she can't get out of the phone booth either because she just looks at that like, like drunk man. She's like, I can't get out. And he just like pushes the door open for <laughs> Just with the littlest effort, the kindly bum. I love a kind. <laughs> I love a kindly bum. There you go. And oh, that came out wrong. Uh, that came out wrong. Mortimer, we're back. <laughs> then we get oh, so and then that's whenever we get our second musical number because our first musical number was by Randy. The no, not Randy. Um, um, David Hodo, the construction worker, because he sings. He has a solo number in this film, which I thought was weird. Which is the I love you to death. Um, video that he was in it started out with a bunch of promise i thought because it was like oh he's in like a, a warehouse full of steel pipes with all these pretty ladies in red dresses but that's all it was was just steel pipes and red dresses and it never i was like oh this is gonna get interesting but then they just kind of started pelvic thrusting and i was like eh underwhelmed <laughs> right and then we get the quartet of Magic Knight, which honestly was probably my favorite song of this movie was Magic Knight whenever they were in the doing their song in the uh, apartment or what have you. 
then that's also when we first meet Caitlin, uh, Caitlin Jenner, uh, Bruce Jenner at this time. And, uh, you know, for anybody who doesn't know who this person is, I'm, I I don't know if you've been living under a rock forever, but, um, uh, Caitlin Jenner, formerly known as Bruce Jenner, um, was a famous runner. And, um, I mean, on the cover of a Wheaties box, that type of thing. And he was, and she was like, just super hot at this time, as far as like, just a commodity, one of those, um, athletic superstars that we just gravitate towards a, a Muhammad Ali or, a, or a Mike Tyson or a Michael Jordan, something along those lines. That's who Caitlyn Jenner was in the 1970s, early eighties. That's who, that's who that is. And he just kind of shows up to this party because he has uh, to make a delivery to Sam. And then he ends up, you know, oh my God, Sam's so pretty and stuff. And he gets involved into like just being there as they're doing their performance uh, and, and doing their demo and stuff. And, you know, you kind of start seeing the flirty magic happening between Sam and uh, Caitlin's character. It's uh, Ron. Ron is his name. And, they they nothing goes past that night because Ron's like ah this is a little too weird for me I'm getting out of here and you know at first she's kind of like all right well you know if you're gonna be a tight ass about it then fuck off and so he does he fucks off and then and then doesn't he just randomly like find her on the street and that's how they have their second meeting well not necessarily after the party and everybody's had a good time and they've recorded the song. Sam goes to meet with a record executive uh, who she used to date. And she uses her powers of womanly seduction in order to secure a listen to a demo. And when she secures that demo listen after leaving her ex-boyfriend slash record executive office, um, Ron happens to be in the same office building. And this record executive has got to be the creepiest record executive ever and they're just like playing it up too because he's like falling all over sam and like in the just creepiest way like sniffing her hair you know that type of just ugh. and he also can't seem to put down a phone long enough to actually carry on a conversation uh so yeah it's it's got like harvey weinstein type vibes and it was just is. Oh, well, they even, they even point that out in the um dialogue she says, oh, it'll be the old casting couch routine and I don't want to go through that. Like, and that's pretty fucking depressing, no? Yeah. yeah, which I'm so surprised that the casting couch was actually a thing back in 1980. So, hey. Oh, dude, it's been a thing since like the starlets of the 20s. What? That's where, that, oh, dude, that's where that originates. Oh, well. Is like back in the old, old days of Hollywood. Min- yeah, but minute. I mean, whenever I think of the casting couch, I think of, you know, a very specific couch in a very specific room um oh well duh but like that that concept isn't new just like the concept of the pizza guy isn't like yeah yeah somebody ordered the large sausage yeah i i had mine with pineapple (laughs) uh but any hooser jesus where the fuck are we it just like happenstance after this movie is the prime example of and then writing it, it, yeah, oh God. writing 
Absolutely. Because yes, she goes to the record label and she ends up getting him to at least listen to the village people and get them some studio time. So now she's going to go back to the house and let uh, her roommate Jack know that he got uh, that she got him this opportunity and, you know, that they need to start working on it together. Well, um, Ron tries to follow Sam back to the house and it's just like totally creeping on her. Uh, and it's like, well, I, I can tell him I ain't got nothing else to do for the rest of the day. And like, you know, just fucks off on his job and, and just decides that he's going to go and follow her for the rest of the day. And so he, nothing is more persuasive than the power of boners. Right. Right. Exactly. Especially whenever you got, you know, that, uh, no country for old man haircut. Um, <laughs> Anton Shaker, <laughs> yeah. a little Dutch boy haircut, man. Young you. uh, <laughs> man, let me tell you. Let me tell you something, friendo. There's no, there's no need to feel down. God, young man, you, you pick yourself little, off the ground. You put a little Buffalo Bob on it. <laughs> That's oh man. <laughs> Would you like a mai tai? Um, was she a great big fat person? <laughs> I think that was a little too good. <laughs> that was a good one. I'll give you that. Okay, so yeah, we get back to the apartment, and Ron's just following Sam back to her apartment when she tells Jack, Hey, you know, I got you the studio time. We need to finish putting the band together. And then Ron jumps in and says, Well, hey, I have an office, you know, back at my family's firm. Uh, you're more than welcome to use it to hold auditions. And Jack's like, Great. Oh my God, that'd be awesome. Yes, we'll go ahead and do that. And then Sam goes into another room, and it's just long enough for Ron to look at Jack and just be like, So, uh, you're banging that. Yeah. It's just kind of basically that conversation. And he's like, Hey, you know, she's a wonderful girl and we're just platonic. And, you know, you got, you kids have a great time. And, and Sam comes back into the room. He's like, I'm just going to go to the store real quick. And you guys, you know, y'all, y'all have fun. You do your thing, you know? And so goot, the, the goot fucks off, you know, he's done his job. The goot is many things, but the goot is not a cock block. And then we have this um, sexual repartee back and forth between um, Ron and Sam. And she ends up like spilling lasagna on him and he has to take off his pants and she's going to go put it in the dryer. And so he gets into this chair that's in her room and in, and in that chair, it's like a barber's chair that's just randomly in her room and and he like reclines back and ends up like falling all the way back and it's just kind of that comedic beat moment and she ends up trying to come over there and help him and she gets on top of him to try and get the the thing to work and it's not working right and it's like flips them back and forth and like ends up with her on top of him and you know the straddling position and stuff and it's porno shenanigans and i won't fucking have it just (laughs) porno shenanigans Pretty much. And it's just and it's just like you want to take this back to the bedroom. And so he picks her up and takes her over to the bed and lays her on the bed. And and it and they end this with the best line of this, especially coming from who it's coming from. Caitlyn Jenner is just like, hey, it's the 80s. You're going to do a lot of things you're not first comfortable with. I'm like, <laughs> it, it was is the very the nature of just like flirting and not even like this movie but basically every movie i've ever seen in this class is just skeevy as fuck uh sam and ron do spend the night together and 
And in the morning, there's an alarm going off and Sam's like, oh my God, it's a smoke alarm. And he looks down at his watch and it's like, no, no, it's just my alarm and, and clicks it off on his watch. And that has got to be the most annoying alarm clock I've ever heard in my life. I'm just going to say that. Well, one, it was an annoying bit of dialogue because, bitch, you don't know what the fuck your own smoke alarm sounds like. <laughs> right. Like, come on. Right. And then, you know, he's like, you know, I don't want to I don't want to just bang you and leave, but uh, got to work. And, you know, I got to be there before 8 a.m. And uh, so uh, I got to leave. But uh, you were wonderful last night. Just, yeah. just the most what 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 a uh, 1979 screenwriter and um, equates to sexy uh, pillow talk is not what I would equate to actual sexy pillow talk. They got paid a lot of money to write crappy scripts back then, and women would sleep with them for um, very little gain. <laughs> it was a different time. <laughs> yes, yes. Sad, but true. Um, I like that song. It's, it's <laughs> off a very, uh, very overhated album. They start holding auditions, and we get into like the audition space, and it's full of like circus performers and shit, which, like... I get it's for like a bit and you want to see people doing funny shit and like freaks and like sort of like freaks and monsters sort of thing. But you already have four established members of this group. You figured you could like root out what you're looking for because they have like circus performers and like flame tossers and shit. Yeah. When all of a sudden this big burly Kenneth Anger looking biker motherfucker walks up at audition and walks up to the auditions and he's got this big old burly fucking Fu Manchu and He's very masculine and very fucking like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Macho? He looked like he was supposed to be in the movie we watched last week. Yes. Yes. For um, precinct that. Exactly. Um, but this is genuinely my favorite part of the movie is when they explain to him what's going on. He just, he just looks, again, looking all Kenneth Angry and shit, just unironically starts singing all of oh dandy boy and it's one of the most beautiful things i've ever heard <laughs> yes and he does he just gets on top of the piano and just starts singing oh daddy boy the pipes the pipes are calling and, he, and, and his face just looks so innocent while he's doing it too but he's still in the fucking like mm -hmm. fuck you chain whip get up <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, this is also the same guy that later on in the film is like, Leatherman, don't cry. Leatherman, don't cry. <laughs> uh, this is also where we meet the final village person, um, the sergeant. And it is this point where I've written in my notes, um, what are we, some kind of village people? <laughs> yes. Yes. And it, I love that they say that, like they're having that conversation about, oh, we should name this the village people. And the the biker guy that walked in, he the first thing he says is I'm from the Bronx. OK, people are from the Bronx. Jesse, what's so goddamn funny about that? Well, you're trying to claim that everybody is from the village. And yet we literally just heard a guy say, I'm, I'm not from here. I'm from the Bronx. I'm just down here trying to get my uh uh, trying to get an extension on a loan. Okay, cut that out because that was a that was a pretty straightforward joke, and it just went right over my head. <laughs> no, sorry about that. But yeah, they find the six members of the village people, and so boom, we're ready to go and record a demo for Mister Creepy Record Producer, Mister Boner Record Fuck. That's I don't. I'm not going to bother to remember his name. He is Boner Record Fuck. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Before we move into that. Um, so, yes, we've got our village people assembled together. Everybody's there, all six of the guys. Um, and this is also the point when um, Ron's socialite, like mom and, and father walk in and there's like, who are all these people out in the lobby? And and his father's all against it and wants everybody to leave and get out of there and wants his son to focus on like, you know, the business and stuff. And his mom is just, I mean, everybody absolutely loves her. And even, even Sam's just like, Ooh, I'm not the prettiest girl in the room anymore. Damn. Oh yeah. His mother is absolutely delightful. And that's, I, I, I wrote it down. I said, his mother comes in and is meant to be portrayed as like kind of unbearable and kind of like abrasive, but no, she's just delightful and fun. Fuck the <laughs> patriarchy. Right. Right. And she ends up, you know, kind of being the crux that keeps Ron going and understanding like, hey, you need to follow this band and stuff, be a groupie for him, basically. Um, And so Ron quits his job working for a very successful company and decides that he's going to help the village people get their start and be, I guess, what their manager, their finance person, something along those lines, and just try to help them out. From there, they have to practice before they have their uh, big recording with the record producer. And so where's a where's a place that they can go that they can rehearse and it's a big enough space and it's also free for them to be able to do it. And they end up going to the YMCA. I think we all know what song is coming. Yes, Macho Man. Yeah, but that's not the only thing that'll be coming in this scene. Oh! (laughs) Zing! Because this this is the scene that we were talking about where, I mean, it is the most popular song of the Village People is probably YMCA or Macho Man, but I'm going to say YMCA is probably their most famous song that they have. And they have it tied to this movie in a scene within the YMCA where everybody's like working out and doing their thing. And then they show like, oh, they're hanging out at the pool and stuff. And and this is where we get full frontal male nudity and and uh, Sam shows her tits. And like, there's just this whole atmosphere that I don't think I've ever, I've, I've been to a lot of gyms before. Can't say that's ever happened to me before. Well, were you at a gym in the 19, in 1979 or 1980? You think fuck? <laughs> I mean, I guess not, but uh tits and dicks were just flopping around willy-nilly. It was a different time. We weren't ready and we didn't deserve it. <laughs> and it's also rated PG. So it was a different kind of PG. Hookhead titties. So did Forrest Gump. Anyways. <laughs> so yeah, they end up uh they end up singing YMCA, and that's kind of their rehearsal song, is them singing YMCA at the YMCA while, you know, like she's she's showing her titties in the pool, surrounded by a bunch of dudes like splashing her with water. I don't know if there's any innuendo there. And then, you know, we get into the showers and all the men are like wrestling each other and like popping each other with towels and stuff. And I mean, all of them are just hanging dong. And <laughs> it's a uh, uh, it's an experience for sure. I'll give I'll give I'll just say that about it. <laughs> yeah, and so we we get through like the sort of this is right when we start to head toward the big gloom in our uh, script sort of basics because after we have the YMCA, you were correct. That is when we go into the recording a demo session with um, record McBoner fuck, <laughs> and they do a song called Liberation. 
Um, it's a pretty good song, but there's a couple of hiccups here and there. They're not exactly all the way rehearsed and they're banging into each other and like there's mistakes. And we're meant to believe that there are mistakes, but if you actually like close your eyes and listen and don't see them like bumping into each other, it is like 95% regularly fine because they just played the original song and put like half-assed mistakes on top of them. But <laughs> anywho, record McBoner fuck doesn't like him and he just walks out. And so what are we going to do, Jesse? What is the plan? How do we fix this? Sam, uh, she doesn't want to dig into her savings to help the band out. So she decides that she's going to actually come out of retirement and call Sydney Channing and and do one more modeling gig for her. And it's going to be a party as well. And there's going to be a pay for party. And so, like, you know, hopefully they can get the money raised. And and it ends up going into this bit, which is the stupidest bit I've ever seen. And that is the milkshake bit. Um, it is the cheesiest got milk campaign you could ever see. And this is the glorious opportunity that Sydney Channing had for her. And it is a milk campaign that she has the village people in. And it's them singing about milkshakes. It is not great. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't hate the song. It's a but, it's a buttload of white. It's the only way I know how to describe it. It's very comparable to that episode of South Park where the kids start a boy band and they're all dressed in white and they're going finger bang. Like, I feel like this is where they got it from because they're in all they're just it's pure white village people gear. And the song isn't the greatest, but, you know, it's meant to be sort of a product tie in. But when they get done with the song, they can't even use it like they, they won't go for it, which I wonder why. But still. <laughs> yeah and it's just another and then moment because it's like oh well and then they couldn't get what they needed so we need to move on to the next thing and then we need one more bit of tension because i'm gonna go ahead and breeze through the like relationship turmoil out of it all because ron and sam's relationship is starting to take off until ron is threatened with the idea that um record mcboner fuck invites sam out on his private jet and so ron gets all macho and butthurt about it that she might go through with it and so they break it off with each other and we're led to believe that she is going to get on the private jet to try to get the village people signed when surprise surprise it is not sam on the private jet it is jack and jack's mother and this turns into something that i find quite troubling and i want to discuss it right now Bring it on. Okay. So we're sitting here watching like record McBoner fuck get all bent out of shape with these two people on his private jet and they're taking off because he thought he was going to have a pretty blonde lady. And now he has this annoying ass protagonist and is admittedly pretty cool mom. But then his mom just starts like, again, it's another instance of Jack cannot do shit for himself because Jack's mom convinces record McBoner fuck to sort of sign the village people and believe in them. But there are some things that happen that lead me to believe that a very weird threesome happened. <laughs> because, like, he, record McBoner fuck keeps eating, like, because she brought food and it's Kerplock. It's Kerplock because she, they're appealing to him because um, Jack, as he says, he's part Jewish, but his mother is Italian Catholic. So they have all their bases covered, which, granted, great food. But, She's giving him food and he's eating it so, I don't want to say sensually, but sensually. Mm -hmm. And then there's 
All of a sudden, we cut to outside of the plane flying to indicate the time has passed. And then all of a sudden, everybody's all nice and bundled up. And Record McBonerfuck's laying in Jack's mom's lap. And Jack's mom is, like, leaning on Jack. And I don't want to, like, assume things that happen and have a dirty mind. But, like, I've seen fucking movies. And I know what sex innuendos are. I've seen fucking, what is it, North by Northwest where the train goes into the tunnel. And that means they fucked. This is not this is more in your face than that so that's it bothered did you am i fucked up or did you get that at all <laughs> because i thought it was weird as shit um i didn't i didn't get like a threesome relationship out of it but i did get the whole like you know i don't think there was a threesome out of it but she definitely fucked the producer and i think the and i think the producer fucked the kerplock i'm just saying all right um <laughs> she came in him he came in the kerplock he did come in the kerplock <laughs> It probably made a sound like kerplock. Oh, no, it probably made a sound like its mother was very disappointed. <laughs> uh, and then they have to take a nap afterwards. And so this is where things go. Not even left field for me. It just makes you go, wait, what? Because somehow the village people got a gig as well and so they're going to be playing at the nightclub and so the record producer signs them to a record deal and then jack takes that back to the place where they're about to go on and perform and says hey we got a record deal we can go out here we could say you know that we got it we did it blah 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 and they haven't even gone out on stage yet everybody's so nervous and this is where we get like the the leatherman being like you know leatherman don't cry leatherman don't cry leatherman don't cry and he, they're just all nervous and stuff and then they get out on the stage and then we get the we get the big triumphant debut of can't stop the music the the song that this whole fucking movie was about and honestly probably besides the milk song which the milkshake song which wasn't even really a real song to begin with can't stop the music had to have been the worst song that was on this movie well let's uh i feel like you're doing a little bit of a disservice to the richie family because they did give me a break before that yeah that's that's true and i actually enjoyed that part of it so it was my favorite song in the movie um i enjoyed what the village people did quite a bit but they're just the different level it was a lot of fun right right and that's the one thing that you can definitely say about this film is that is it coherent? No. Uh, is the acting good in it? No, not at all. But is it enjoyable? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say there are some points in there that uh, that are definitely enjoyable. And I don't think that I'd go out of my way to watch it again. But if it was on and I had to listen to, you know, them sing Magic Night one more time or listen to them do the YMCA thing one more time. Sure. Yeah, I, I I didn't feel I thought it was a little long. I think two hours is entirely too long to get across this hackneyed narrative you place together. But it wasn't horrible music to listen to in succession. And, you know, Sam was pretty fun to look at. So before we get into our sort of final instances of thought on this particular picture, uh, do you want to get into the Can't Buy Me Love critic of the day? I guess it's time. It's the Can't Buy Me Love reviews of the day. Come on, let's hear them out. Oh, hell nah. In the Can't Buy Me Love critic review of the day, we like to give a, a voice to the voiceless. We want to hear from people that may have a different feeling than we do about this film or a different feeling than 
the people who created the Raspberry Awards feel about this film. Because like I said, this movie inspired the Razzie Awards. And so I want to hear from some other people. I want to hear from some people who thought that this movie deserves a second shot. What's surprising to me is that, um, and it's probably my favorite place to get our reviews from, especially whenever I'm looking for a second opinion, is I like to go out to Amazon because this movie has a 4.5 out of 5 star rating on Amazon. Right. Which is absolutely amazing to me. And I want to hear from these people. (laughs) My favorite place to get them is off of Letterboxd, just because that's probably the most unhinged sort of comment section you're going to get because it's more people who are in on the joke. This review comes from Alan Mott over on letterbox.com. It's going to be four and a half stars, which, all right, sir. He starts with, a disaster, you say? Maybe, but an infectiously enjoyable one. I've seen it more times than Citizen Kane. Where else can you see the village people pretend to be everyday heterosexual dudes conscripted into the gayest disco sensations of all time? All that and Caitlyn Jenner and Jean Swartz and Valerie Perrine's perfect breasts? Do you hate joy? (laughs) which i think is a very fair examination of this particular film this one confuses me uh this is from daniel reyna they rated it five stars and they say i loved the movie just for the one reason the village people i love this movie just for the reason the village people and steve gutenberg came out in it surprised by the okay acting skills of bruce jenner before he made the horrible mistake of being kate jenner (laughs) it is campy with funny 70s music and various artists to see each member of the village people come into the light as an individual instead of just as a group if you want to be taken back in a time where music was fun and you love to dance then this movie is for you i have seen this movie so many times just so i can listen to the music and think how great an era the 70s were it's a mixed bag of of emotions right it's this person i feel like is celebrating the gay part of it but also makes really transphobic comments um so is there there such thing as like a turf but but for dudes I, i don't know man but yeah i I just, I, some people, man, I don't understand. No, I, I, it's like a reverse. They had us in the first half. Yeah. <laughs> right. You had me there. And then you had to say something halfway through that made me go, Ooh, buddy, come on now. I got one more for you before we move into our next section. This is another five-star review from Jocelyn Brooklyn, a camp classic. So bad. It's hilarious. Is this movie so bad it's hilarious? Hell yes. The YMCA sequence is reason enough to watch. This is camp at its finest. It's a masterpiece of bad cinema, and the tunes are catchy. And acting is so over the top that any scenery is chewed to bits. To quote the film, anyone who could swallow two snowballs and a ding-dong shouldn't have any trouble with pride. I'll replace that with my favorite quote out of the movie. It's from, what's her name? I think it's Sylvia or no. Lulu's boss or whatever her name is. She's sneaking into the party and there happens to be an unruly cat. And she just screams at the top of her lungs. You rotten pussy. (laughs) Uh, I mean, they put some great one-liners in here. I'll give it that. Most definitely. But without further ado, and for the last time this season... I think it might be the end of the flick as we know it, buddy. I think it is. And I feel at peace. 
And now, for the moment you've been waiting for, it's the end of the flick as we know it! No, seriously, get out. Go on. Get. Shoot. It's the end of the flick as we know it, so we'd like to just wrap things up by giving you some trivia, going over anything that we have not gotten the chance to talk about or that we may have missed or skipped over. Um, and then we also like to put things on the sour scale, and this is the final sour scale of the season, so you will get to hear our final thoughts on what we think is the worst film of the year 1980. Just some interesting facts that we came across and we kind of talked about one a little bit earlier was that Olivia Newton-John was first asked to be in this film and be in the lead role. However, she turned it down because she was in Xanadu, which was another film that was nominated on this podcast. Well, she made the right choice because Xanadu was the more uh, more commercial success because if we'll, if we'll take a look at the numbers here, Can't Stop the Music was produced for a budget of either 25 million or 13.5 million who you choose to believe but a undisputable number is the box office only grossed two million dollars which it doesn't take a mathematician to uh deduct that that is a failure a bit a big old flippity flop and let's see askin robbins had a flavor of the month tied to this film uh called can't stop the nuts <laughs> You're fucking bullshitting me. I am not <laughs> bullshitting you. Can't stop the nuts. You're, the you're store sign is promoting the movie. Yes. <laughs> stop the nuts. It's fantastic. So, yes, I, I had to throw that in there. And then, okay, here's another one for you. The milkshake song, the song and dance sequence required two weeks of rehearsal, five days of filming, and 57 camera positions. Jesus Christ. It's like the Camera Sutra. <laughs> uh, don't ever say that one again. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> All right. Another little tidbit for you. Glenn Hughes, the Leatherman, the, the biker guy, he mentions in the film that he uh, he works down at the toll booth and he's there for a extension on his loan. Surprisingly enough, he was an actual tow booth operator before he joined the village people. That might be the only true thing about this film. Which that might be why it's so fucking boring and happenstantial, because often that's how real life is. Shit just kind of happens and there's not really that much interesting. Sometimes anyway. So that that, that could be kind of the uh, problem with it. Um, do you have any other interesting factoids there, boss man? The location shooting inside of New York City was complicated by gay activists protesting Cruising, another film that's been on this podcast, which was filming nearby. The two productions were mistaken for each other more than once. So people were coming to protest Cruising and ended up protesting the Village People movie. <laughs> oh, that's fucking horrible. Like, because the. This movie isn't perfect, but it was made with like a little bit of love. Yeah, and that's way I and that's the way I kind of look at this movie. And you know, uh, we're we're about to get into uh, our sour scale, so I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything. But you know, this film isn't as bad as as some of the other ones we have had. Let's just say that. No, not at all. But without further ado, since you mentioned it, why don't we go ahead? I'm going to let you give your final sour scale for the year my friend my final sour scale for the year 1980 mm. well i think i'm gonna have to put my number one 
is still to this day, Friday the 13th, just because of how iconic it is. I don't want to go through it all. We've been through this so many times. We've been through this 10 times now because this is our 10th episode in our season finale. So you guys know the reason my love for Friday the 13th and what it spawned and stuff. Second, I would probably have to have the nude bomb. Um, such an underrated movie. I think it's actually really good. If you like Austin Powers, if you like the naked gun, if you like slapsticky comedy, it is right up your alley and up your alley in a good way too, because it's so progressive for the time that it came out in. Absolutely. Um, it has its moments and it has its flaws. No, no question about that. But I, I love the idea of the bumbling idiot surrounded by smart women, you know, and that's what that movie had. Well, isn't that the dream, you know? All right, exactly. And then let's see, coming in at number three, I would probably have to put, crazy to think, but I think I'm going to have to put Can't Stop the Music at number three. I I, 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 I can... I can see why you would come to that conclusion. Do continue. Okay. Well, the reason why is because I actually enjoyed this film. I thought that it had a lot to say about gay culture. And it wasn't in the sense of how we had with cruising and with windows, for sure, where, you know, they had the killer queer scenario and there was a murder and there was this evilness behind gay culture and stuff. This one seemed to me like it was overall a celebration of gay culture. They showed homosexuality in the best of lights for that time, even though they didn't come out and like fully say that, you know, we're, we're doing a movie based around some homosexuals. So I thought it was very well done in that respect. I also hold it above Xanadu just because Xanadu got boring. There were parts of it that were lazy. This movie, Can't Stop the Music, was anything but lazy. They went for it, man. They the, That $20 million budget that they had, you see it. It's on the screen. That's for sure. Maybe not in the best parts of the film and maybe not used where it should have been used, but for the most part, they use that money. So I'd have to put it above Xanadu as well. Coming in at number four would be Xanadu, just because it's still fun. It's still light. It's frothy. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have a lot to say. The story is muddled and there's not a lot of plot to go with it, but the music is catchy. It's relatively harmless. It doesn't have anything mean or negative to really say. So I'm going to have to put that at number four. Number five would probably have to be Saturn 3. Saturn 3 is relatively harmless, but boy, is it boring. Even with a killer robot and a great cast, still could not save that film at all. Kirk Douglas's ass could not save that film. Hey, Kirk Douglas's ass can save everything. Nah, you might be right about that. But it's the reason why it's as high as it is, okay? All right. Like, that's what I kept coming back to. I'm like, it could go lower, but Kurt Douglas's man ass. You just see a list of pros and cons, but in the like third column, it says number of appearances of Kurt Douglas's ass. And Saturn 3 is the only thing in that column. <laughs> exactly. Yes, that's definitely going to be sitting at number five. Number six, we have Raise the Titanic. It's relatively harmless, but there is zero action in it. It is a boring, dull snooze fest. I thought it was just boring uh, looking at muddy water. I mean, it is James Cameron porn. Uh, that's all it is. After that, I'd probably go with the formula. 
another relatively harmless movie, but is boring. Honestly, I think I think the formula and Race the Titanic could be interchangeable with one another at this point, just because both of them didn't have a lot to say. The plots were muddy and I just lost interest. Like as soon as those movies started, I was just like, uh oh. And then after that, I would probably have to go with the jazz singer just because it has the problematic point of him being in blackface at a certain point. And um, that is terrible and you shouldn't do that in a film. But the rest of the movie is relatively harmless. And it's kind of got a lot of that aspect like I Can't Stop the Music has where a lot of things just happen to the protagonist. Let's just be honest. I mean, if we're going to center this around the protagonist, you got to go with the goot over over Neil Diamond any day of the week. Oh, twice on Sunday, my friend. (laughs) And then that's going to be followed by Cruising, which Cruising, to me, it's not as bad as Windows because it has a lot of terrible things to say about gay culture, but it also shines a light on gay culture and at least gives them a platform. Windows gave it a platform, but everything about everything that it had to say about gay culture is that gay culture is linked to like uh, psychosis and the only crazy people are gay. And it's 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 just god awful i mean i cringe thinking about that film thinking about that rape scene thinking about you know just the just the performances in it or lack thereof it is a god awful movie i would never recommend that to anybody by far windows should have won worst picture by far there's no other film on this list that deserves to win the worst picture category more than Windows. Gordon Willis also did get nominated for Worst Director. However, he did not win it. Robert Greenwald won it, who is the director of Xanadu. And I find that to be bullshit just because Gordon Willis, man, I mean, that film was just terrible. And to have the idea to to put money behind that and to bring people together just to make that type of film. Gordon Willis, come on, man. You should be ashamed of yourself for that one. Well, and and Barry earned every bit of that worst screenplay award. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, buddy. So you heard mine. Let's uh, let's get it from you. So what is your sour scale looking like? All right. Just to tell you why you're wrong real quick. Um, Okay. Bring it on. Number one is going to be the nude bomb, just because that's genuinely just one of the funniest movies I've seen in the past few years, like just full stop, not even in the realm of bad movies. Uh, Number two is going to be Friday the 13th for me, because while I do agree that the cultural impact is very much there, it's not really for me. I don't really find it all that. I find bits and portions of it interesting, but not as much as I do on the nude bomb. Um, Number three, genuinely, I want to put Xanadu because it's shorter. It's 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 shorter than Can't Stop the Music because Can't Stop the Music is a hearty two hours. And I feel like you feel every bit of that two hours. And while I enjoy both of those films genuinely equally, it's neck and neck. I prefer Gene Kelly over the village people. It's nothing personal. That's just me. Okay. Well, I mean, hey, to each their own on that one. I just want to say you're wrong. So Wow, wow, all right, shut up. Um, (laughs) but Number five, like you said, I'll get back to agreeing with you so we can make a nice boring podcast where we disagree each other with all where we disagree with each other all the time. Saturn five is gonna or Saturn three is gonna be number five. You got me throw it off, Jesse. Thanks a lot. 
And at number six, uh, I'm going to go ahead and put the formula over Raise the Titanic because, again, they're practically, as far as just enjoyment levels for me, they might as well be the same picture. <laughs> it's roughly the same runtime, roughly the same amount of intrigue. But I'll go ahead and give the formula the nod just because swastika nipple tassels are the slightest bit innovative. And I can't stand James Cameron at this particular moment, so fuck submarines. When we come down to the bottom three, the bottom three, uh, I'll go ahead and put the jazz singer at number seven, because while I do hate blackface, um, like the rest of it is pretty inconsequential. It's about the same quality as a Zana do, or it can't stop the music. But, you know, you just have that very problematic first bit. Um, Cruising is going to be number nine for me because it's a hateful film, I think. I think it's a very hateful film. But at the end of the day, it is a queer voice. Um, Friedkin is part of that community, but it was a it was a part of, it was a community that he was accused of hurting and i think it's very troubling picture and i think it's a very hurting picture um but bottom of the shit list hands down deserve worst picture is windows i've never seen a more atrocious piece of shit in my life um and if i could erase one memory from one movie from my memory it would be windows as far as my final thoughts on can't stop the music mostly harmless bunch of fun a little long and, you know, if, if you appreciate the village people, you appreciate queer, queer culture and you appreciate a uh, hot lady's boobs in a pool scene, you'll have a bunch of fun. <laughs> That's exactly correct. My final thoughts on Can't Stop the Music is just campiness, fun. Um, you can tell that every single person on this set was having a blast. There wasn't anybody that was like tired or wanting to go home or just fucking done with it. Everybody seemed like they were just have it a ball and it's obvious to see why because i mean the film is fun regardless of if it makes sense or um has great acting in it the movie is fun it's harmless and it celebrates a culture that doesn't get a lot of celebration especially in this time in the year 1980 yeah i think it's i think it's relatively harmless i think it's a i think it's a decent film but it does not change the fact that windows is god awful and um and in our eyes and i think this is going to be a consensus on this um can't stop the music should not have won the worst picture of that year i get that it influenced the razzies to be made and we thank it for that but i feel like they should take a second look at that because oh my god windows especially in a 2022 light whew, that is a terrible film and so with that being said I think that brings us to our newest segment, which uh, we just started last week. And it's just simply, what did you learn? So we do this podcast because we believe you can learn just as much from a bad movie as you can a good movie. So at the end of these, we'd like to just take a moment to think about what this movie taught us as filmmakers so we can take that knowledge and move it into our own production. So Kieran, I got to ask you, man. What did you learn from this film? I suppose I learned the the value of fun when it comes to pictures, because that kind of separates an unenjoyable bad movie to a bad movie that you can have, you know, a, a little bit of fun with, you know, at the risk of sounding repetitive. Um, but, you know, there's not too terribly much to learn from the village people's kind of greatest hits, you know, it's just it's just a bit of fun, isn't it? It is. It's just a bit of fun. So, and I think I learned from this film that it's a, it's a lot on the same lines of of the fun aspect of it. You got to have fun while you're working because if you 
with something that's not even a great story or a great script, if it's something that you can tell that people are enjoying themselves and that comes across on screen, it can mean a lot, right? With that being said, I think that before we move into our last and final segment, which we call Plugs Not Drugs, uh, we just want to go over real quick any of the other categories for the first ever Golden Raspberry Awards, because all the films that we went over were films that were nominated for Worst Picture. However, some of these films did win awards in other categories. For example, Robert Greenwald won Worst Director, and that was the director for Xanadu. Neil Diamond won Worst Actor. Honestly, I think that's very, very deserving. <laughs> worst Actress, surprisingly, was Brooke Shields. And it was for a film that was not on this podcast. It was for The Blue Lagoon, which was, I mean, honestly, it was a decent movie. I thought it was, but. I mean, it's a pretty shit movie, but it helped a bunch of teenagers nuts. So that was about the purpose of it. And then the Worst Supporting Actors um, was a tie. It was John Adams for Gloria and uh, Lawrence Olivier for The Jazz Singer. So, <laughs> and Marlon Brando was in there as well. However, he was not tied for first place. I'm surprised they couldn't come up with a uh, a number one for that one. They had to give it to both. <laughs> uh, the more the merrier, I suppose. And then Worst Supporting Actress was Amy Irving uh, for Honeysuckle Rose. Never seen that film. And then Worst Screenplay, uh, surprise, surprise, is Can't Stop the Music. Honestly, I can understand where that's coming from just because I could I could totally see where like reading this film on a script had to be torture. Oh, yeah. So I can totally understand where this one worst screenplay. <laughs> we also want to go over what we're doing next because we are doing a season finale right now. We will return. We are coming back for a season two and we are going to go to a new year. So we want to kind of switch it up. We did the year 1980 because it was the first year of the Golden Raspberry Award. So we wanted to make sure that we went through these films and at least give you the first 10 films that were ever nominated for Worst Picture. But we want to switch it up because we don't want to stay in the 1980s and just talk about a lot of Cold War gay bashing movies. We want to give it a little bit more diversity. So we're going to switch it up. And I believe our next year that we are going to be looking at is the year 2001. It is the 21st annual Golden Raspberry Awards, and there were only five films nominated for Worst Picture. However, I think this little group of films right here is definitely worth talking about uh, because we have such films as Battlefield Earth, Book of Shadows, The Blair Witch 2, The Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, Little Nicky, and the next big thing. So we've got some really, really good films coming up. We are also trying to get people to special guests for us on each one of these films as well, because our last special guest that we had, Jared Shamoon, was probably my favorite episode that we've done so far, just because it was so fun having a third eye, because I'm sure y'all get tired of hearing mine and Kieran's voice all the time. So we want to throw another person in there to change it up, give you a new perspective, you know? So we will try as hard as we can to get somebody lined up for each one of those films. And other than that, I think that's pretty much everything I need to say before we move into our last segment. We're moving on to plugs, not drugs. Oh, that's some good shit. Man, fuck these drugs. I think it's time we spread some plugs. You got those plugs? 
Hey man, let me get some of them plugs. I'd say it is baby for a plug. I'm not doing. I'm not. I'm not doing a song. Oh, oh. What do you mean you're not doing a song? You've done a song for each one of these. You got to do a song for plugs, not drugs. Kiss my left testicle, Jesse Ryan Rodden. All right. Well, that's a shitty song, but I'll take it. It's it's <laughs> it's, it's it's more of slam poetry. <laughs> All right. In plugs, not drugs. We like to plug everything that doesn't have to do with this podcast. We are on the final stretch of this last episode of the season. So, Kieran, what you got to plug, my man? Same old shit. Follow Radio War on all of your um, preferred social medias, R-A-O-W-O-R-E. Donate to whatever Rod and Reels production we got going at the moment that Jesse, I'm sure, will elaborate on. And, you know, love your neighbor. Follow us on uh, all your your favorite social medias. To you, my friend. Excellent. So, yeah, um, make sure that you go out there and you donate to any of our productions that we have out there right now. We still have Campfire Cravings that we do plan on filming here very soon. We're actually going to be probably filming that in March, April time. We want it to get a little bit warmer outside before we do that. However, we also are selling t-shirts as well that could help us out as far as helping with the production and helping with the budget as well. You can go to gofundme.com backslash campfire cravings to donate, or you can go to tpublic.com backslash rotten reels, and you can purchase one of our shirts. You get something and we get something out of it too. Whatever route you want to go we do appreciate anybody going out there and supporting us we also have this podcast raspberry fields forever where we'll be coming back for a new season probably end of january beginning of february we want to take a little bit of time off so we can really focus in on this production that we have coming up other than that i have one other bit of news kieran has already been previewed to this but me and kieran actually uh, wrote a pilot script for a series that we Uh, have been working on for a little while now. God, this goes back to our days in film school. And uh, that script is called Holiday Havoc. We have submitted it to several festivals and screenwriting competitions. And right now we are semi-finalists in the monthly film festival screenwriters contest. And we should be hearing more about that on if we won the contest here in the next couple of weeks. So hopefully when we start the new season, we've got some good news for you and we'll let you know either way. Right now we're semifinalists. We are hoping to make the finalist and then they're going to announce the winners just to be nominated itself is amazing. I mean, you know, we have an award-winning short film, Daddy's Girl, but this is a, a screenplay that we've written that we're starting to get acknowledged for. And man, it's so appreciative. Uh, I can't believe that we're We're doing this again, Kieran. (laughs) Other than that, it is the holiday season and we have Thanksgiving has already passed and Christmas is just right around the corner. So from all of us here at Raspberry Fields Forever, we want to wish everybody a happy holidays, a Merry Christmas, a happy Kwanzaa, happy Hanukkah, whatever you decide that you want to uh, follow and celebrate. Please go and celebrate it with your family and your loved ones. Kieran, is there anything else that you'd like to say, my friend? Mm. Try and be better people. <laughs> well said, my friend. And I think that's it from us here at Raspberry Fields Forever. We will see you guys next season when we have many, many other films to frolic through the fields with. From us at Raspberry Fields Forever, this is Jesse Rodden. This is Gary Gibbs. And we'll see you in the fields next week. Bye for now.
You've been listening to Raspberry Fields Forever, a Rod and Reels podcast. Available on Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you receive your podcast. You can go to the website www.rodandreels.com for even more content. Thanks for listening. Get off the stage already!